right. Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Uh, Charlie, you know, we had a meeting the other day at National Review, and it was right after that big overnight news broke, and uh, no one said anything about it. And I was surprised. I felt like I'm the only one who cares about the FDA prohibiting menthol cigarettes. <laughs> I've actually written about that in the past. Yeah, I think we both have, probably. Um, a couple of other things before we get to the obvious uh, row thing that we will actually be talking about, which was the real news from that day. Man, just terrible timing for the tobacco lobby there. You got to feel sorry for them almost, you know, I mean, in terms of as sorry as you can feel for the tobacco lobby, I assume. Just knock their story right off the front page. But um, a thought I had earlier in the week. Um, I love capitalism, Charlie, as you know. and beyond the obvious aspects of prosperity and freedom and choice and all that stuff. I love the way that capitalism is able to absorb various kinds of social radicalism into itself and more or less neuter them. You know, a lot of social conservatives are unhappy with capitalism because they think that it upsets communities and families and traditional ways of life and that sort of thing. There's something to that. But there's also something I think that's just very usefully socially conservative about capitalism. And the reason this was on my mind was um, I was in a doctor's office and they had one of those um, endless infomercials on in the, uh, in the lobby. And I, I'm not sure if it was for car shield, but if it wasn't for car shield, it was a company like that. Someone who um, gives you a sort of insurance uh, policy for, for car repairs. And this product was being pitched by, um, this, you know, 65 year old, uh, multimillionaire, uh, named Ice-T. <laughs> and I thought that was just the greatest thing in the world. You know, when I was a kid, he was such a terrifying figure to some parts of this country that there were you know, congressional hearings essentially about him and that kind of thing. And he was, you know, sort of the face of a certain kind of radicalism. And now he's just this old guy who's on law and order and pitches car shield in the afternoons i thought that was just uh god bless america certainly god bless america that guy uh, is entertaining but crazy is he crazy i think so I, see I, think... I i don't know a ton about him but what i do know he seems pretty sensible so two things about him that i do know um one of my favorite sort of um moments of his was on twitter and someone was giving him grief about you know, you used to be the guy who had an album called Cop Killer, and now you, you know, you play a police officer on Law and Order. What's up with that? Why are you such a sellout? And his answer was just wonderfully honest. And he said, it's all acting. You know that, right? You, you know what <laughs> I've done? You know what I've done? Um, what's I've that? I've mixed him up with Ice Cube. Oh, yeah, Ice Cube. Oh, gosh, you're going to get canceled now, Charlie. But, um, yeah, yeah, you may as well mix him up with Vanilla Ice. Gosh. So I know who Ice T is because he's on Law and Order, and my wife watches right. Law and Order. But I had just mistook in my head this tweet that I saw a few years ago, and I assumed it was Ice T, but actually it was Ice Cube who said I something see. horrendously anti-Semitic. So I've actually been really unfairly maligning Ice T in my head now for years. Ice Cube has a long history uh, with unlovely thoughts and utterances about uh, Jewish people. It is uh, not a great aspect of him. He's a wonderful musician. I like his uh, stuff a lot. But, um, yeah, pretty pretty nasty stuff. Actually, he's someone I think of sometimes on that very subject where people, um, some people just can't enjoy entertainment that's made by people that they have disagreements with. 
you know, you and I have talked about this some. And Ice Cube is has really interesting things to say about a lot of things, but he's also just said some really ugly and indefensible things about Jews over the years. And um, I still like his music. I don't think that means you have to endorse the uh, anti-Semitism. So Ice Cube and Ice-T have the same beard now. Everyone does when you get old enough, yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll have my beard eventually, Charlie. So I, I missed uh, N.W.A., I, yeah. was, I was four when Straight Outta Compton came out. I, it it right. wasn't something my parents were particularly keen to introduce me to. <laughs> so <laughs> I just missed that whole thing. But, um, I mean, I know now what a sensation the band was. I just, it didn't loom large in my uh, in my life. And, and I didn't know who Ice-T was at all until Law and Order, and then I started reading about him. Yeah. Now I've got a uh, Ice Cube's uh, "When Will They Shoot" is kind of on my regular my regular playlist. But my other favorite Ice T story I don't know if this is true. This is a story I heard, and I hope it's true. And it seems like it would be true. But right around the time that Cop Killer album came out, he was I want to say maybe in his early to mid thirties then, and he had made, I guess he had had four or five records that had done pretty well, and he thought he was just in the end of his career. He's like, I'm a rapper, you know, you get maybe three or four albums and I've got, you know, five now and that's that's all I'm going to have. And so apparently the, the story is that he um, decided, well, I have to figure out how to invest my money. And he thought he couldn't trust anyone in the entertainment business or anyone he knew or anything like that. So apparently he just went driving around uh, the greater Los Angeles area and ends up at some Chase private banker in uh, Brentwood. <laughs> and, you know, goes in and comes up with some really conservative, sensible investment uh, portfolio and, you know, talks to them about, well, I'm going to probably want a, a new car every couple of years and I uh, need this much to live off on, blah, 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 blah. And uh, so, they, well, you've got more than enough money. And they come up with this, you know, sensible program. And he says, great, I'll stick to this. And if I ever go bankrupt, I'm going to come in here and kill every one of you. <laughs> so, because he had been friends with uh, MC Hammer who made something like $20 million the year he went bankrupt. It's hard to make $20 million and go bankrupt at the same time. Yeah, but, but you know, I'm always um, baffled by this. And, and, you know, whenever I talk about this, people write to me and they, they say, you don't understand that sometimes coming from a poor background really doesn't equip you well uh, to have a lot of money. And I know this is one of the you know, things people said when Marco Rubio's boat was a big scandal in our politics. Remember yes. those halcyon days? Um, but with, you know, that would fit in John Kerry's swimming pool. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, people who win the lottery, they, they just so often blow it. Things go bad. And I never them. understand this. And so, I, you know, I get emails from people saying... Um, you don't understand. And, and so I, I, I preface what I'm about to say with that. I do, I do grasp. Uh, that that you know that there are there are some environmental factors here as well, but I also think this is partly genetic because I just know, and I've always known this about myself that you know if I made twenty million dollars in a year, I just wouldn't be able to spend even ten percent of it if I decided to have a blowout. I just <laughs> I just couldn't do it. Um, I don't know I how people week. could well, see. This is the thing. I just this is, this is why I say I think it's partly genetic. I just couldn't yeah. do it. 
you know, I've actually written this essay, a couple of versions of it over the years. And I, I often think about the case of Alan Iverson, who, uh, you know, got pretty screwed up financially and was lucky in that someone had talked him into putting all of his Reebok endorsement money into a trust fund that he can't touch until he's 60 or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't have a great upbringing, but uh, Alan Iverson had a really hard one and uh, <clears throat> a really hard life story. You know, a guy who was in prison for a crime he didn't actually commit. Um, and a couple of years later was, you know, one of the richest and most famous men in America. And if you had given me Alan Iverson's money and fame at the same age he got it, I'd be dead. I wouldn't have turned out even as well as he did. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to, um, you know, people not being prepared. Oh, I'm uh, sympathetic. Sort of uh, totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I didn't grow up rich. I, I didn't grow up poor. I grew up middle class. But I also just, it was just drilled into me. I mean, you know, my dad used to say, even if I if I had little money, 10 pounds or something, you know, just loads when you're 10. Um, my my dad would say that don't let that money burn a hole in your pocket. It's fine just to put it away, and he would say it every day. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I wanted to bring up to you was there's um a new language that apparently has been more or less officially recognized. Can you guess what it is? No. No. What is it? It is British Sign Language which is now apparently, uh, as I hear on the radio, to be recognized as distinct from uh, American Sign Language, which has long been recognized as the, I guess, sort of standard uh, sign language for Anglophones. And the advantage of British Sign Language is what? That you can more easily pick up girls It in sounds fancier, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, it sounds, you sound much smarter uh, signing in British Sign Language <laughs> than in American Sign Language. That's I mean, there are actually some interesting things there where there are different, you know, sort of semantic sensibilities and things between British usage and American usage that is also reflected in uh, sign language. But um, I'm not sure if this is still true, but at one point, American Sign Language was, I want to say, the fourth most spoken language in the United States. Um, really um, pretty more widespread than people uh, know, I think. I did not know that. I remember uh, I had a friend I uh, worked with at a newspaper who had been, um, uh, he was our art director. And um, this was in Philadelphia. And some guy came in off the street and he was experiencing some sort of difficulty. I don't remember exactly what it was, but he was uh, signing. And um, our art director just, you know, sort of stood up and answered him. And none of us knew that he had you know, known this. And uh, it kind of came out of nowhere. It's like, you know, hearing someone you know, speak a language you don't know that they know, just sort of out of nowhere was really quite surprising. I guess he'd had a, a deaf uh, friend that he was close with when he was young and had learned the sign language at that point. Well, I, it had never occurred to me that there would be a difference between British English and American English and sign language. So I'm going to have to learn more about this. Yeah. Well, obviously, there's an enormous difference in, in non-signed English between the two. Oh, yeah, of course. of course. And apparently that, that difference reached its height in about the Second World War. Is that a fact? Well, Bill Bryson has this book called Mother Tongue, where he talks mm -hmm. about the English language and also other languages. And um, one of the points he makes is that the, the 
differences between American English and, and British English are sort of um, a bell curve, you know, over time, where you start and they're pretty similar, and then they become more and more different as the countries develop their own cultures. Yeah. America changes from being a colony into an independent nation. And uh, then, really, with mass communication in the 30s and 40s, it starts, it reaches its peak, and then it starts to homogenize. And so now, uh, the two languages are very similar again. And, you know, because every, not so much the other way around, although there is some of that, but uh, every kid in England grows up watching American TV to the point at which they wouldn't even notice. I mean, I can remember being a, a kid. And I just didn't hear American accents as, as distinct, particularly. I, I, I didn't know they weren't the same. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if somebody has an Indian accent, you go, oh, you have an accent. And if, if somebody has a you know, French accent, you say, oh, you have an accent. But with Americans, it was so common that it, my brain didn't say, wow, foreign. You know, it was just, well, yeah. that's, that's the language we all speak. I kind of think maybe Indian English has gone the opposite way. You know, in the in the nineties, Indian English seemed to me very obviously uh British English. But I guess because it's such a large community of English speaking people there now that it's really developed kind of its own uh direction. And Indian English seems to me more distinctively um Indian now than maybe it did thirty years ago. So I had this friend at university who was Indian and I used to love listening to him talk on the phone to his parents because um it, he he would slip in and out of English and I don't know which dialect he spoke in India. Um, but he he would slip in and out of it and then he would just use English words really jarringly and suddenly in the middle of a sentence like internet. Yeah. Um and uh and then there are some English words that in order to make uh the sentence flow, he would add G to the end of. So he would say and I don't know if this is normal, common, but so there would be the English word, but he would just put G on the end. Huh. Well, G is an honorific in um, Hindi. So it's something you use to um, show respect for someone. So Mohandas Gandhi is known as Gandhi G, for instance. Oh, and maybe so you, I misinterpreted that. So if he said Mama G. Yes, he's just being polite about his mother. Oh, so he he was doing it with names, and I was hearing them as English, which they are, I guess. Because and then yeah. he would add, ah, okay. I've wondered about that my whole life. Thank you. <laughs> now you know. All yeah. right, useful, useful stuff. Uh, you are welcome, Mad Dogs and English listeners, for this uh, digression before the ugly subject behind before us. Actually, it's not that ugly a subject. Um, you know, Charlie, I've been pro-life for as long as I've had political ideas. It's an issue I've always cared about. I care about it more than I care about most other most other issues. Um, it's um, in some ways the reason that I got you know involved in um, any kind of you know sort of more activist approach to politics and and writing about politics. But everyone is way too excited, I think, right now about uh, the news from the Supreme Court, even if everything that we think right now is true is true, that this is going to be the majority opinion, that it's not going to be a gentle nudge, but a uh, gutting and vacating of Roe v. Wade. That's a big deal symbolically. It's a big deal uh, from a a jurisprudential point of view in in the history of American legal practice and all that. But it's not actually going to change very much about 
um, abortion in the United States, how it's regulated right now, who gets them, who doesn't, how many there are, or any of the rest of it. It's just going to be a recognition of what most people, or not most people, but a lot of people already know, including a lot of pro-choice uh, legal scholars who are intellectually honest, which is that Roe was wrongly decided. It was a gross overreach on the part of the Supreme Court, which was creating social policy and not interpreting the law. And it was a bad decision and it's now been repealed. And the question, like every other question of its kind, will be handled by lawmakers, uh, probably mostly in the state legislatures, although I suppose there will be some action to try to uh, resolve this one way or the other at the congressional level, which I think is unlikely to go anywhere and probably wouldn't be constitutional even if it were. But um, all this angst and wailing of, oh, my God, it's the handmaid's tale and there's going to be no more uh, access to abortion in the United States. I mean, I wish there was going to be no more abortion access in the United States because I think abortion is a horrible thing. But California is not going to ban abortion. Neither is Connecticut or New Jersey or New York or Illinois. And most states aren't going to ban it outright. Frankly, I'd be surprised if Texas did. They will, you know, do what most European countries do, which is say, well, it's, you know, more or less accessible up to 12 weeks or 14 weeks or something like that, after which there will be increasingly stringent requirements and uh, restrictions on it. Don't you think that's likely to be the case? Well, I have a more optimistic take. Okay. It's certainly the case that the overturning of Roe and Casey would restore the status quo ante and restore the Constitution and not ban abortion. And that, in my view, is the correct outcome. I'm pro-life too. I wish to see abortion ended but this won't do it nor should it because the constitution's silent on the question in my view and the federal government isn't empowered to make this decision in either direction so much as the democrats are now talking about codifying roe at the federal level i think that would be struck down for want of an enumerated yeah. power and this makes me unpopular when i say it on the right but if the republican party were to sweep in uh, to Washington and either abolish the filibuster or get 60 votes and then try to ban abortion nationally, I think that wouldn't should be struck down too. I don't yeah. see any justification for it. Uh, but I think that the overturning of Rowan Casey will be salutary in a number of really important ways. First off, while it doesn't save any lives, it is a good thing to remove lies from our jurisprudence. The Supreme Court has been lying about this and maneuvering around the lies for 50 years. Yep. There is an enormous corruption in the Supreme Court because it has had to follow this uh, falsehood. And I don't just mean in the justices themselves who've had to write stuff they knew wasn't true and come up with uh, legal approaches, undue burdens and so on, scrutiny levels uh, to adapt. But I mean the other branches of government, and the citizenry. And Justice Scalia put this very well in his dissent in Casey, where he said, the reason they're outside the court screaming at us, the reason they send us thousands, tens of thousands of letters, the reason that confirmation hearings have become such a disaster is because we usurped power that wasn't ours. We put ourselves into this maelstrom, and removing the court from it will be a good thing for our constitutional order before we get to the merits of the policy. Second, I do think uh, that whether or not it should be, 
the fact of a given Supreme Court decision tends to change the politics that's associated with it. The moment you say to someone, it's in the Constitution, it gains an imprimatur. It, it gains an endorsement. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that, say, Second Amendment advocates, such as myself, benefit from being able to point to the Constitution. There's no doubt in my mind that free speech advocates point to the Constitution, and they benefit from that. It, it, it's, I don't think that there would be any less of an intellectual case for free speech if the First Amendment hadn't been written. But I do think that it helps sustain uh, free speech within the law and uh, the right to bear arms within the law, and so on and so forth. And, and so, though he was reluctant to include a Bill of Rights in the Constitution because he thought it undermined the enumerated powers doctrine, which it did, did James Madison, who said when he introduced the Bill of Rights, hopefully one advantage to this process will be that it uh, secures in the minds and the hearts of Americans in the future an attachment to these, these rights. Now, abortion is not in the Constitution, and Roe and Casey are lies. But because people think it's in the Constitution, I think that they are more likely to reluctantly um, acquiesce to our abortion regime. And I, I had a good example of this ab about two years ago. I went to a television studio to do a CNN interview, and I got chatting with the guy who ran it. He was about 70 years old. And uh, we were talking about the Second Amendment, and uh, because that was my topic on TV. And he said, it's on the Constitution. And then he said, and that's why I don't want the government to touch abortion. And I said, oh, okay, so, so you're pro-choice. He said, no, I, I think I'm a Christian, and I think abortion is evil. And I said, well, okay. Uh, and he said, but it's in, it's in the Constitution. You know, the Supreme Court said it's a constitutional right, and we have to respect that. <laughs> and I thought, well... <laughs> I mean, yeah, we would have to respect it if it actually were a constitutional right and work to change the constitution, but it's not. And I do think that over time, um, exhibiting that, that this wasn't in there um, is, is going to help. And then on the third portion, I'm slightly more optimistic than you. I mean, clearly there's going to be no great change in New York or California. And in fact, there may be more abortions and they, they may yeah, get maybe even worse. more. Uh, extreme. They, they might pass laws that allow abortion up to birth if they don't have them already and, and, and start subsidizing it more than they already do. But I do think that bringing a lot of um, uh, other states more in line with public opinion is going to save some lives. I mean, for example, Florida uh, is not going to take the same... I was wondering same... what you think Florida is going to do. Well, it's not going to take the same route as Mississippi and ban it at six yeah. weeks or uh, as, as Alabama or Wyoming and maybe ban it completely because Florida is actually not that sort of state. But also Florida is not a state in which anyone thinks that abortion at 20 weeks, well, I shouldn't say anyone, but the median voter thinks that abortion at 20 weeks is acceptable. And, and so what the legislature did three weeks ago is ban abortion after 15 weeks. And I think that that is about where Floridians will end up. Um, and, you know, I think the Texas six-week abortion ban will probably stand. And I think you'll see, you know, 10, 11, 12, maybe 15 weeks in, say, Wisconsin or Michigan or somewhere like that. And um, that is going to help. I mean, the, the, the reality is that this is not at all intellectually consistent and it's not reflective of my view. 
But getting rid of Roe does help practically because Roe is extreme. Roe is far more extreme than where the American public is. Yeah. And if if you get rid of it and you allow states to set this, there's not going to be a huge amount of difference in the, the what we call blue states. But in the purple states and the soft red states, there is going to be a difference because even though there won't be support for a full abortion ban, which is the intellectually consistent position, there will be support for abortion regulations that are far stricter than Roe allows. And we know this because if you look at abortion polling, it is true that in the first trimester, Americans are comfortable with abortion. 63%, I think, say the first trimester, fine. Yeah. But once you hit the second trimester, that drops to, what, 30%? And once you hit the third trimester, it drops to about 13%. Yeah. But Roe and Casey uh, have allowed abortions, you know, well, well beyond the point at which the American public expresses disgust. And yeah. I do think it will help uh, around the edges to uh, bring the law in most states closer to where Americans are on abortion than to the uh, limits that were contrived in Rowan Casey. Yeah. And I think politically it's healthier, obviously, to fight this stuff out in the state legislatures. Um, we've got a much more immediate democratic accountability than to do it in the Supreme Court through the proxy of the presidency, uh, which is one more right. thing hung on the imperial presidency right. to make it one more um, you know, aspect of its idolatry and uh, one more thing to be emotionally and tribally invested in the presidency. So the more stuff, obviously, we can pull out of Washington, pull out of the courts and put into the uh, legislatures, I think, is uh, good. You know, I am, as you know, a, a qualified admirer of democracy. Um, you know, it's, it's a way of getting things done, and uh, I'm glad we have it. I'm not, you know, a monarchist or something like that. But I'm not someone who thinks that, well, if 51% of the people believe something, that thing is therefore good. Um, I don't accept that point of view, never have. But um, this is the sort of thing that you really want democratic processes and institutions to deal with, where you've got um, not only deep disagreement, but also really varying levels of uh, prioritization of the issue, which is one of the, you know, it's kind of, it's not a, you know, it's not a, a, a two-dimensional chart. It's a, it's a lot more complex than that. There are people who are 100% pro-choice but don't really care very much about the issue. There are people who are pretty much 100% pro-life but don't you know, make it their number one issue. There are people who are actually not 100% pro-life who you know, support certain exceptions or support access to abortion before 12 weeks, but for whom it's still a very important issue, a very central issue. And um, because of the complexity of the issue and um, the way that it plays out both in politics as such and as a broader social phenomenon, um, it's, it's, it's just much better to deal with this on a legislative level than it is to try to deal with it in a yes, no, up, down, win, lose, Supreme Court, one size fits all, national um, outcome. That's just uh, has always been a recipe for disaster and uh, always will be, I think. Yeah, I saw someone tweet that their dream was for this issue to be like zoning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in the, the president would say, well, I don't have a view on that. That's up to Milwaukee. And then I saw someone responding, and I understand this argument too. Well, you can't really believe that because this is a matter of life and death. And 
you know, I do understand why people on the left say it's incoherent to say this is a question for the states, but it's also murder. But it's actually not incoherent if you accept reality as it is. And that is that we don't have the same consensus around this that we have around murder. And so if you and also want... state by state is exactly how we handle murder. Well, of course, of course. And so if you want to build that consensus, then it's, you're better off without the Supreme Court standing in the way and usurping power that it doesn't have. But also, if you're going to have the sort of you know, impassioned arguments that we would have over a subject such as murder, the question is, well, where is that anger and, and enthusiasm going to be directed? And it's just so desperately unhealthy to have it directed nationally, let alone at a court. Yeah. Now, this should be the sort of issue that people get very angry with their state legislators uh, over. <laughs> this should yeah. be the sort of issue people get angry with their governor over. So the downside of democracy, of course, is that people are dumb, Charlie. And this issue, man, it brings out the dumb people. Uh, you should see my mail from this week and just, you know, comments and such. I was a very, very angry person saying, you know, we've got to fix this now because after the elections, Mitch McConnell's going to be Speaker of the House and we'll never get any legislation passed. And no, Mitch McConnell's probably not going to be Speaker of the House because he's not in the House. So, I mean, technically, I guess he could be Speaker of the House, but it's unlikely that Mitch McConnell will ever be Speaker of the House of Representatives. Or people saying, well, Biden needs to, you know, expand and pack the Supreme Court unilaterally by executive order. Eh, you really can't do that, folks. I mean, yeah, they could expand the court, but they'd take an act of Congress at least and yada, 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 and all sorts of other things. Uh, it brings out the crazy and the dumb in people, Charlie. And um, that is kind of despair-inducing, even more so than usual. Well, here's another optimistic take. I think that local government makes people smarter. That's not to say people in local government are necessarily smart, but I think if you can see what's in front of your eyes, you make better decisions. One yeah. of my objections to nationalizing questions of import is that you know there are a lot of things that happen in this country that, that are, are, by definition... Uh, specialized or local and it's really quite silly that you know i in florida for example have an indirect say over logging policy in oregon because much of it has been federalized yeah i don't know anything about it i don't know any loggers uh, I, I i've never been to that part of the united states and i mean i have obviously been there but i haven't yeah. been to that in any educated sense and and uh, You've not made a deep study of the Oregon logging industry. No, and and so I think you know when what it do comes you do to, all day, Charlie. Come on, <laughs> but when it comes to zoning or transportation or education, um, people can see what's in front of them, and they can see what's happening in their local school. As um, someone who's been to city council meetings in Austin, Philadelphia, and San Bernardino, among others. And the city councils are not necessarily very smart, but I think you're right that even as dumb as some of the people are in local government, they've got a, they at least have the opportunity to access information in a direct and relatively convenient way. Well, and it's hard to lie to them. I mean, the, the, the reality is that if, if a woman in Missouri can't get an abortion after a certain number of weeks because that's the law, she will know that. And yeah. if she can, she will know that too. And you, you, you can tell people all sorts of things about politics at the national level and they'll never check. But you can't tell them that the road that they rely on is open or that there aren't any potholes if it's closed and there are. Mm. You can't tell people that the school that their children attend is open if it's been closed for COVID. You can't tell people that the 
zoning rules in their city are working for them. Um, if they're not, you can't tell people that the median house price where they live is affordable if it's not. And, you know, I just think that this is one of those issues that actually local exercise and debate will make people smarter. It's, it's, it's very different uh, having me engage in a debate over homelessness in Los Angeles than a Los Angelino. And, yeah. you know, abortion is a little different in that it does raise questions that are universal. Um, but also, uh, the consequences of abortion policy are will be and have been uh, apparent to people. Um, and it's just very difficult to have those conversations nationally when you do, even under Roe and Casey, have such a variation between, say, California and Mississippi. Um, and uh, I, I think this will probably focus people's minds and, and force them to argue in a much more practical way uh, than they currently do. Quick sidebar. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of a shame, well, for lots of reasons, that you are um, a misguided atheist, because you'd make a really good preacher, I think, Charlie. You know, just when you were doing that repetition thing um, <laughs> and sort of working yourself up a little bit rhetorically, that's a real, you know, kind of traditional uh, homiletic, you know, sermon uh, technique. You, you would have made a, you'd have made a good preacher, Charlie. No, oh, thank you. I can assure you that's the first time anyone has ever said that to me. <laughs> well, probably not the first time anyone's ever thought it. you you do a lot of public speaking. You're good at it. Oh, well, thank you. Well, no one's ever suggested that, uh, I, I'd be a preacher. I think cause they know, although it's funny when I was, uh, I think six and I first went to uh, proper school, uh, my first school report said that I was good at divinity, which is what the old English schools call religious education, obviously, uh, and Latin. And my dad said, well, he's destined for the priesthood. Then. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Speaking of which, how many times have you been accused of being some kind of uh, secret religious fanatic this week? Well, I don't know because I don't read Twitter anymore. I just post on there occasionally or link to my pieces. But it does happen um i'm sure i mean I, this was what i used to get every time i wrote about abortion was you're just a theocrat yeah and i'm not, <laughs> I'm not. as it turns out as it turns well you know out. i hate this argument I, I i really hate it it's dishonest but it you know a cousin of it i wrote about yesterday is that if you don't want to fund the government programs that certain people believe we need then you can't be pro-life and it's just such a terrible argument yeah. like well if you aren't prepared to pay for childcare, you have to be pro-killing children of course you don't the, the material question here is whether or not an unborn child is a human being that's it yep. that's the whole case if an unborn child is not a human being then i'm wrong and yep. there's no particular reason to protect an unborn child, and there's no reason for the state to be involved. If an unborn child is a human being, and if that human being is as worthy of protection as any other human being, then that is a freestanding conclusion. And what we choose to do in other realms of politics have no more bearing on that question uh, than does anything else. It, 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 if you wouldn't say that a five-year-old should die absent the government's support, that you might want, then you can't say that an unborn child 
should, unless you believe that the unborn child isn't a person. And if that's the case, then you go back to step one and say, well, then there's no need to protect them. Yeah. Pretty high burden of proof on that, that argument, I think, by the way. I mean, I would like to take sort of a Sherlock Holmes process of elimination of that question. So, okay, if not a human being, what is, is it a rutabaga? Is it a pumpkin? Is it a dolphin? When are we going to get to the thing it actually is? Which, of course, you never will because everyone knows what it is. Yeah, and I like I like people who make blunt arguments um, rather than euphemistic arguments in this area because at least they make you think. And then one argument that I got by email was from a, a lady who said, you know, no one who's aborted cares because they never knew they were alive. And mm-hmm. so let's assume that's true for a minute. I, I don't know that that's true. I no one knows they've been murdered either if they're an adult. Ah, exactly. And that's funny. That's what I thought, <laughs> right? So... Yeah. So if you assume that that's true, that the the child is in utero and that they don't have any memory and they don't have a developed consciousness in the way that we do, at least we think, and they just get killed and they never knew they were alive. So who cares, right? That's the theory. But, you know, that's true. When I go to sleep at night, if someone shot me through the head, I'd never know. Yeah. So I wouldn't be so we shouldn't worry about, about nuclear war because no one who dies in a nuclear explosion is ever going to know there was one. Right. I mean, it's it it to me it just always comes back. However, you argue this to the central question, which is, is it a life or not? And yeah. that's why I like arguing this with people who say it's not, or actually, my favorite, quite genuinely, the people who say it is, but I don't care. Right. At least that's honest. Yeah. Well, well so kind of Camille Polly's view for a long time. She had this kind of. Yeah. Weird quasi-mystical view of, of course, it's a human being, and of course, we're killing a human being, but women should be allowed to do that because women create life, and we're special for that reason, and blah, 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 blah. It was a weird argument, but it was at least sort of an honest one. Well, and, and it's coherent. Yeah. Not morally, <laughs> but intellectually. Sure, yeah. Is there anything else we should talk about before we wrap this one up? What are you working on? I'm writing a response to Brett Stevens, who wrote the conservative case for upholding Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I saw that. Um, not his greatest piece. No, and a little odd, given that uh, his central argument is that it's been around for 50 years and conservatives ought to uh, wish to conserve, given that he has written for the repeal of the Second Amendment, which has been in American law since 1791. But mm. um, I, I think the biggest problem with it is that he just seems unaware that this is still a raging dispute. You know, he says the Supreme Court will light a fire. No, no, no. There is a fire. There's been a fire for 50 years. And we didn't start the fire, Charlie. (laughs) Yep. You know, speaking of... I do. Speaking of Billy Joel, uh, did you see the argument between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elon Musk? Um, I saw some little thing on, he was accusing her of flirting with him on Twitter or something or. Yeah. So they had some argument and someone tweeted, um, ah, I finally know what Billy Joel meant when he wrote, uh, the waitress is practicing politics while the businessman slowly gets stoned. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. That is good. That's a nice line. (laughs) All right. I'll talk to you next week. Have a good one, Charles. All right. Bye.